What's up, Pickleheads? If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a few seconds to follow or subscribe wherever you're watching or listening. Thank you. Welcome to Picklehead Podcast. Happy to have you back here with us. Uh, today, we want to talk some pickleball controversy, some controversial uh, shots, controversial pickleball ideas. Some people have one idea. Some people have something completely different. So we want to kind of see, we'll share our opinions with you. Uh, maybe some beginner versus intermediate versus versus advanced and kind of see how Austin and I differ as well on, on some of these pickleball topics. So without further ado, Austin, you want to take it away with, let's start with attacking cross court. Yeah, so Spencer was asking me what, what we want to do the podcast on. Just dropped my phone, but he's asking me what we wanted to do the podcast on. And um, I was like, I kind of want to talk about controversial topics because what I'm hearing preached a lot, I don't necessarily agree with to a, to a 100% full extent. So yeah. starting with, like Spencer said, attacking cross court. A lot of people, I posted a video of one of my friends hooked me up by attacking cross court and I was late getting to the ball and I totally missed. And uh, people just think automatically, okay, so this one pro said don't attack cross court. They automatically say in their minds that never attack cross court. It's a bad idea all the time. Or it's a bad idea 99% of the time and you should just throw it in randomly. But it's way more about the location of your attack. Of course, they have more time when you're attacking cross court as compared to directly at the person in front of you. But that being said, if you can hit the correct location and do it in such a way that it makes your opponent get into kind of a chicken wing type position, then you're going to have just, then in my opinion, you're going to have the same amount of success as you would as attacking the person straight on from you in that chicken wing position. The only difference is the person that's straight on from you is expecting it. Whereas the person cross court isn't expecting it as much, especially as you get up to higher levels because everybody preaches don't attack cross court. So the main point of attacking cross court is the location and you want to attack across the body of your opponent. If I attack cross court and I, let's say I'm playing uh, two righties, so, and I'm on the even side and I attack to the even side, which everybody says, no, never do that. The problem is, is people will attack it to the backhand of their opponent on the even side or right at the opponent on the even side, cross court. When you want to go across their body, so they're going to be holding strong backhand because they have to cover middle. Their, their partner is going to be covering the line. They are not going to be able to get to their forehand quick enough. If they do, they're going to be late on it. And chances are, it's going to be a pop-up for now your partner to put away. So that's the way that I see it. I don't see it as a, as you hear so many other people talk about it as like a make or break, never, ever do it type of thing, or only do it, um, 1% of the time. I think it's a, if you can get the correct location and actually practice hitting the correct location, it's a great shot. What do you think, Spencer? What are your thoughts on attacking cross court? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, to a certain point, I think we're really close on this one. 
So let's talk about the beginner versus intermediate versus advanced. I would say at a beginner level, if you want to attack cross court, just freaking go for it. Um, and as you work your way up levels, you start to get, you know, maybe still beginner, but, but push in that intermediate level when you're attacking cross court. Um, maybe, maybe not so much, uh, maybe not as often. And, and I would, I would say never super, super often, regardless of if you're a beginner or an advanced player, um, you still want to surprise the opponent. Um, and then I would say when it comes to advanced, like you said, you nailed it on the head. It depends on where you're attacking cross court. Um, so if, if you want to, uh, you, you also take the risk of, like you said, if you're attacking, say, forehand to forehand, so right side to right side, and you attack, um, and you do attack the opposite side of their body, one risk you're also taking is is hitting the ball out. Yeah. So you're trying to you do want to try to keep it low. Um, I I always try to keep the rule not to attack unless the ball is is popped up. In most cases, if I'm trying to surprise the opponent, maybe I'll attack off a bounce. You know, one out of thirty balls. Maybe I'll attack um, a low ball. You know, same thing. Like one out of thirty-ish balls. But uh, for the most part, you want to hit it in a down, downward trajectory. You can hit it across their body, but keep in mind, you also want to keep it in. Um, and then one more thing, let's talk about reaction time. So I think the reason, playing devil's advocate here, the reason people always say don't attack cross court, uh, you know, and they end it at that, is because the person cross court from you is farther from you and has more time to react. Whereas the person in front of you has less time to react because, you know, say the person in front of you is 14 feet or less away. If they're reaching out in front of them, it's going to be less than 14 feet. Whereas the other person um, cross court from you has a lot more, a lot more reaction time. And I think that's why as a general rule, a lot of people will say don't attack cross court, but then they don't really get into the specifics of it. And then you have locked in your head. You're you're trying to get better. You're trying to do what's necessary to get better at pickleball, but you hear "don't attack cross court," and um, you know a really good player told you that, and so you never attack cross court, and you right. never take that opportunity, and you become predictable. Whereas, yes, you can attack cross court, but do it uh, methodically. Do it, um, you know, not not crazy often. Uh, try to keep get the ball on a downward trajectory, try to get it across the body. Um, yes, they have more reaction time, but they're not going to be ready for it if you're only doing it one out of 20 shots. They're not going to be um, sitting and, and waiting for it. Another reason they won't be waiting for it is typically we do, uh, at a more advanced level, typically we do attack the person directly in front of us. And so they're they're waiting for you to attack their partner who's directly in front of you. Um, and when you can surprise them and, and, and attack cross court, I think it's a, it's a good option sometimes keyword sometimes, but, but not all the time. Uh, so yeah. now that I've talked forever uh, on it, Oz, what else do you want to add to that? Well, yeah, I totally agree with the majority of what you said. The thing is, is if you attack down the line, they have less time to react, but so do you, because if they counter that shot, 
now you really got to be ready because it's coming back just as fast, if not faster than your attack just came at you. Whereas Great if you point. attack cross court, people say, oh, you're screwing your partner over. But your partner has a lot of time to see that ball going cross court. My yeah. biggest thing is there's only a certain amount of balls that you can attack cross court. Because like Spencer was saying, you'll hit the ball wide. So it has to be a ball that is they have taken you out wide. And that ball has to be above the net net tape. Where it bounces above the net tape and gives you an opportunity to fake attack like you're going down the line. And then you just swing it past them across their body cross court because mm -hmm. since you're you're pulled out wide obviously you're not wide enough to get an atp it's high enough that you can speed up over the net the person that is directly um, down the line from you is going to have to cover the line if they're a good player if they're not covering the line then you should burn them on the line every single time and that's something that you can test out with players because some players just don't and maybe it's the fifth time finally they cover the line and they win that point it's like, okay, well, you got four points because they never covered the line before, and now you can switch it up on them a little bit. So they have to cover line. If they're not covering line, they're doing the wrong thing. And you know what to do next time, hit it down the line. And then their partner has to pull over to cover middle. Otherwise, the middle's wide open. You can speed it up the middle, which is what they want you to do. So they want you to go line or middle or at the body of the person right in front of you. That's their hope, right? But if you pull it cross court from there, across their body, they're gonna be late getting to the ball because the person in the middle will have his paddle pointed, his paddle edge pointed towards you. So he'll be slightly to the backhand. You pull it across him and now he's caught up here and it's going to his right hip. So it's a great opportunity for now your, your um, partner to put that next ball away. And then what was the other thing I was gonna say? Well, while you're while you're thinking yeah, about, think it, about it, I mean, one more. those are two excellent points. And just to stress what you said one more time, I mean, I just I didn't really think about it that way, and, and I guess I don't think about it enough. If you are attacking directly in front of you, you got to be ready for that to come right back. And then the second thing that that uh, uh, you also triggered something in my mind. So if I am attacking uh, cross court. And, uh, you know, the, the opposite is true. You, you have more time to react if they do get the ball back. You know, maybe they're going to punch it at, at your partner, which is most likely. But like you said, if, you're, if you, ta you know, got them across their body or in that chicken wing position, when they counter back to your partner, it's, it's not going to be that good a ball, you exactly. know. It it will be a good ball less times than it than it uh, than it'll be a bad ball. Um, so hopefully you're setting your partner up by going cross court. Um, <laughs> well, that's what it comes down to, and that's what I was going to say. Is either you're you need to really work on your speed up because it sucks, or you can <laughs> attack cross court. So it's like you can absolutely attack cross court if you hit their right hip and go across their body. It's going to be a great setup for your opponent. But if you go a little high, for your you're partner. going to get slammed down your throat. So that's why it's not advised to do it. But it's just like, it's just a levels thing. And where I would differ is I would say if you're a beginner player, only attack at that right hip of the person in front of you. And then when you're drilling, throw in some, or when you're playing in rec games, throw in some cross court and try to hit that spot. And then as you advance, then you're going to get really a lot more consistent at doing it. But... 
Yeah, to say that 100% of the time it's a bad idea. I get so many comments on my videos and on that video that I posted where he attacked across my body. To say that it's a bad idea 100% of the time, I just fully disagree with. So, yeah, so that was controversial topic number one. And, and again, I like that you stressed at the end, don't just go start playing rec or don't jump in a tournament and then say, well, Picklehead said to... <laughs> said to hit it said to attack cross court and then you you haven't practiced it at all when you're drilling Uh, that's probably not a good idea so so go drill it a hundred times drill it a thousand times and and try to aim for that right hip gotta get the location somebody set you up so that you keep uh, getting a ball that's above the net so that you can figure out that location and then when you go play rec or in a tournament then then try it out uh don't do it every time you know you don't want to be predictable but but yeah, that's a that's a great point. Really quick, who I learned that from was right when I started playing pickleball. I played with um, Minnie Wilkins, who's a former pro, Elise Jones, who everybody knows who watches pickleball, and um, her husband Ryan Jones. And it was me and Minnie playing against Ryan and Elise, and I poached. So it's a different situation, but I poached and I hit it down the middle and then at least hit a winner past me over here. And then she told me only thing that you need to change about that is hitting it across my body because I have to cover middle there. Ryan has to cover line. So it's fundamentally the same thing where you hit it across the body of the opponent. They're going to be late getting to it. And she said, if I would have gotten to it, it probably would have been a pop-up and then you could have earned it and put it away or whatever. Wow. So I guess it originates from her, but cool. Next point, rushing to the net. I know you have some stuff to say about this one for sure. Oh, yeah. Let's just talk about what we mean. Uh, uh, We could say at the beginner level, at the intermediate level, and even at the advanced level, you'll have players um, that want to get up to the non-volley zone as quick as possible. Uh, Even though that's being taught, you want to do it, and you've talked about this before on the pod, Oss, getting up there methodically not not sprinting to the net every time in hopes that your partner hits a good shot um but but making making your way up to the net based on the trajectory of the ball based on your partner's uh confidence in hitting the ball based on um i don't know there's a lot of factors that play into it but uh you hear you know get to the kitchen line get to the kitchen line as fast as possible or your partner may say just sprint if it comes to me just sprint up there uh which i'm guilty of that i've told partners <laughs> that before if we're looking for a shake and bake um but what's the counter argument to not rushing to the net off yeah so it's like obviously you want to get to the net as soon as possible but and i'll i'll play with anybody any skill level but the only thing that frustrates me is I'm not going to hit my drop perfect every time. So if you don't have a good enough defense or a good enough midcourt play and you kind of rush the net on my drop and it's slightly high and you're missing it majority of the time where they're hitting it at your feet or they're hitting it at your body and you're missing that shot and you can't get more than three in a row mm-hmm. or even two in a row, then I wouldn't advise you to run forward. But then as you advance, I think it's a pretty good opportunity to run forward 
and get to the net as quickly as possible because you have the hands and you have the skills to support your decision making. But for majority of players and even majority of, of four, five, five, oh, five plus players, you want to assess the situation. So you see that someone gets a return that's someone hits a return that's like, I don't know, a foot off the baseline or a half a foot off the baseline. Mm-hmm. Don't rush the net. Please do not do that. It makes it so difficult to play with you unless you have crazy good hands because it just makes no sense because I'm not going to be able to hit a fantastic drop on that 100% of the time. It's probably going to be like 30% of the time or maybe 40% of the time that I'm going to be able to get a drop good enough that they're not going to be able to hit it at your feet based off of them hitting a good return. So assess the situation, see where they've hit the ball on the return. And then I'm totally fine with you running forward. And then it's like, okay, yeah, that's on me. That being said, Sometimes drops are on, sometimes they're off. And pickleball is a game of runs. So if I'm missing a ton of drops over and over again, and you keep rushing the net and ending the point instantly, it's on you. You need to just stay back and let us work it out together to where we can slowly transition forward methodically. So yeah, that's just one of my little things that just... um, Irks you? Yeah, kind of just irks me, but... It's like at the same time, it's just pickleball. It's not, it's not the biggest deal. It's just, if that could be fixed, that would be great. Because I think it's a great, when you and your partner are on, rush the net. But I think it needs to be practiced where you know that you're good at your midcourt game to where you can consistently get balls that are hit at your feet enough. Then I'm, by all means, run forward every time. But it's like having a methodical move forward is going to do you a lot better. Assess the situation based off of the return. You'll do a lot, a lot better, in my opinion. For sure. And then the count, the counter argument to that. Let's let's hop into that because these cross over. So I mm-hmm. know somebody is going to talking about their strategy of the shake and bake. Um, but before I do that, real quick, I do want to mention you triggered this thought as well. If like like the pros right now, if you watch any pro pickleball. Not all of their drops are, are, are perfect. They're over, but some of their drops are high because they're focused on consistency over, um, what's another word that I'm perfection. looking for? Yeah, over perfection. They, they definitely want to get the drop in regardless. If that requires, if they get a really good return, if that requires that their drop be a little bit high, I mean, I, you can see lots of those, lots of those pros drops are high, but they're making almost every single drop they're not they're not missing their drops you know and and drives as well drives might be a little bit high but 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 they're making sure that they get them in yeah so i i wouldn't uh yeah in in talking about rushing the net let's also talk about the shake and bake i'll explain what that is for anyone that might not be familiar but i think we've lots of us have heard it a ton of times so shake and bake is basically when you're setting up your partner so the opposing team returns the ball to you and instead of dropping the ball you decide to drive it at the other team typically with quite a bit of speed typically in a place that may cause them to pop it up slightly if they're trying to keep you back your partner's job at that time is to try to follow wherever uh, their volley is so you drive it the opposing team hits the ball 
Now your job is, if they've popped it up slightly, to put it away. Whether that means crossing in front of your partner or just poaching just to the middle of the co- of, of the court. Um, maybe it comes right to you if you're lucky, but typically it involves a poach. So the shake is the drive. The bake is putting away the ball after the opponents have, have volleyed the drive um, and in hopes that that the opponent has popped it up slightly. Um, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about the solo shake and bake, but I think the counter argument us for, for rushing the net is, well, they know that, you know, we're going to shake and bake right now. So I'm, I'm going to drive the ball and my opponent's job is to rush the net as soon as I drive the ball. Um, in that situation, if that's the way that you've set it up, I wouldn't suggest doing that over and over again, but if you want to do it a few times a match, great. Um, more than, more than, you know, I guess we should say two to five, more than two, two to five times a match. If you're wanting to shake and bake, I, they're, they're going to be ready for it, uh, especially at a, at an advanced level. And, and, and really, if you go play with at a five O plus level, they're really going to be ready for it. Yeah. Uh, would you agree with that Oss? Or do you think, uh, even in a shake and bake situation, uh, maybe approach, with caution approach the non-volley zone with caution so it's all about assessing the situation i think automatically being like okay hey let's shake and bake this next one together i think that's a horrible plan because you have no idea if your drive is going to be slightly high the odds of your drive being perfect are are not going to be that high consistently so before you say, hey, let's look for an opportunity to shake and bake is a lot better plan because I think the shake and bake is awesome if it's used correctly. So in two situations, I think it's awesome is one, you serve the ball, your serve is fantastic and it keeps that opponent back long enough to where they maybe make it to mid court or just past mid court by the time you're hitting your third. And it's like shake and bake all day, baby. And so it's recognizing that they're still back. You want to hit it to that opponent that's still back, not the person at the net. And then your partner comes in. That next ball is going to be a put-away ball majority of the time, especially if it is the person that's running forward is in front of your partner. Does that make sense? Yes. So assessing that situation. The other situation would be when a team is stacking, which for those of you that don't know what stacking is, if – someone starts out serving on the right side they stay playing on the right side the entire time so they'll like stand behind their partner as their partner serves from the right side of the court they'll stay over there on that side the entire time and um, when they're returning they'll switch positions so that that person can always stay on the right so it's a great opportunity to do a shake and bake you hit your serve way out wide pull that opponent out wide because they have to run all the way across to the other side of the court to get to their position. And then your next shots, majority of the time, going to go to that player that's trying to transition forward and run forward. And since you've served it so far out wide, chances are they'll make it to about mid-court or just past mid-court again. And then it gives your partner an opportunity or you an opportunity, depending on who's hitting the drive, to put that next shot away. Those are the two situations where I feel like, and I'm sure there's another one, where I feel like a shake and bake is totally necessary and is a good plan, and you can set it up yourself. It can be predictable based off of your serve. 
But other than that, just going into a shake and bake, I think is not smart. Just being like, hey, let's shake and bake this next one. If they're both at the net, all they have to do is block the ball right at your feet as you run forward. It's really simple. Yep. But it's all about that transition forward where the opponent is. And you're never hitting it to the opponent that's already at the net. You're always hitting it to the opponent that's transitioning forward. So, yeah. Excellent point. So let's talk then about the solo shake and bake. Uh, Travis Rettmeyer, when he was on the podcast, I don't know, a month or so ago, he talked about how he's also against the shake and bake. He hates when his partner just sprints forward uh, because it's not very predictable. But he does, he is an advocate for the solo shake and bake where you're setting yourself up to put the ball away. Uh, so he talks about, like, like Austin just did, um, putting, your, you know, your partner has the opportunity to methodically, um, with caution, proceed to the non-volley zone, while you, on the other hand, have confidence in your drive um, enough that you're hoping that wherever you drive the ball, it's probably going to come back in the same trajectory as where you drove it to. So you have a better opportunity of putting away that next ball than does your, than does your partner. Yeah. Um, so I know he was, that's why he was more of an advocate for, for that. Um, since then I've tried the solo shake and bake and I've found that it's worked out. I haven't done it a ton. I've just done it here or there because, uh, again, I don't want it to be predictable. But I found it to be more effective and less risky than an actual shake and bake. Have you tried it since he talked about it, Oz? Yeah, I like that you brought it up. Um, I think the solo shake and bake is awesome, and I've tried it, and it works. Only thing is, is a two-person shake and bake, in my opinion, is going to be better if both players are on the same page and have some amount of predictability of what their partner's gonna do based off of, it's all based off of where they are, where their opponents are in the court. So if their opponents are transitioning forward and in the transition zone, one of them is, that should automatically spring into the person that's hitting the drive. Like it's time to drive, it's not time to drop, first of all. And in his partner, the partner should be like, okay, we've played together so much and I know that he recognizes what I recognize. So he's going to drive that ball. And the reason for it being better, I think, to do a non-solo shake and bake is because the person can get to the net quicker. The partner can't because the person uh -huh. who's hitting the ball has to stay back and hit the ball and focus on their stroke. And then they can lean forward through it and run. Whereas the other person can take a head start because they predict exactly what their partner is going to do based off of that, based off of where the opponent is in the court. So I think it's a little bit better to do a normal shake and bake rather than a solo shake and bake after I have tried them both myself, because you can get to the net quicker, but it's like, it just comes down to being on the same page as your partner, which is probably going to happen. Not very often is, is not going to happen very often. So that's going to come from playing together a lot. That's why I err on the side of solo shake and bake until you have discussed it with someone and you guys have figured out tendencies and 
preferences and stuff like that so that you know what's going to happen. Otherwise, it's just you're running to the net blindly. Yeah. In hopes, yeah, you're you're hoping instead of, and and hope isn't really a good strategy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so again, that's why this is controversial. I wonder. I mean, I would imagine that someone is yelling at the screen right now because they have a counter argument. We get it. I mean, that's why these are kind of controversial. But we're trying to share our experiences. Um, that's what comments are for. Comment away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Comment away. Um, we're happy to to comment back and have a discussion, and, and we'd yeah. love to hear other other points on this. Um, we're not against hearing other people's points for sure. All right, next topic, Oz. This one I've heard a lot, especially to beginners. Um, some people that that think their coaches will tell will tell players to stay at the non volleys online. Okay, they'll say to stay once you're at the kitchen line. Always stay at the kitchen line. Don't back up. Stay there at the kitchen line. But there's a lot of situations where you could be handcuffed with the position of the ball. You could be lobbed. The ball could be um, hit somewhat behind you in a certain way that you can't get out of the air. If you can get it out of the air, great. But I very much disagree with always staying up at that kitchen line. If you have to go back a little bit to get a better shot, in my opinion, back up slightly, take it off the bounce, and then come back to the kitchen. There's no rule that says once you get off the kitchen line that you have to you have to stay back, or that once you back up you have to stay back. Uh, there's no rule for that. So if you do have to back up, if you get a tough ball, regardless of what that ball is, maybe back up, set yourself up while moving your momentum forward and then work your way back to the kitchen line. Um, and then maybe the next one you can get out of the air. Maybe you need to back up a little bit here or there. Um, but what's your, I know that you're very good at staying at the kitchen line, Oss, and getting balls out of the air. What's your opinion on this one? Yeah, I have the same exact opinion as you. So it's, you're going to have to take a step back when you recognize that your opponent gets a little bit higher of a ball. Otherwise, you're going to get the ball is going to come too fast at you. Like nobody has that fast of hands. Even Ben Johns takes a step back and is ready and prepared for that next shot. Colin Johns is a great example. Annalie Waters, she stands back a lot of the time as she's dinking, especially in mixed. She'll be like a foot or two off of the non volley zone line, dinking yeah. back there, allowing an opportunity for Ben, who's her partner, to burt across her or have as much room as possible to come across the court and hit with his forehand because ultimately his forehand's way more powerful than anybody's backhand's going to be. So I think it's, yeah, it's kind of funny if people say, obviously you want to get to the net, but you're not planted there. And one of the frustrations that I have is when I'm back and I'm trying to hit drops, right? So let's say we've made it to the net. Someone lobs it over us. I'm back and I'm trying to get us back into the point and my partner is just standing at the kitchen line. I'm like, get back, get back, get back. But it's too late <laughs> because yeah. I had to focus on hitting these drops over here, right? I shouldn't have to be like, hey, get back. It's just, and, and people with a tennis background will automatically come back because you want to stay together. It's a really good strategy. But people without it, they just, it doesn't quite click, right? They just think, 
I'm not sure exactly what they think because I, I come from a tennis background, but they think something along the lines of if if Austin back there hits this drop slightly high, the point's automatically over, maybe. Or maybe they think my hands are fast enough that if Austin hits them in overhead, I'm going to hit an overhead back at him, which isn't going to happen. I'm not sure what it is, but you should follow <laughs> your partner back. So don't feel like you're glued to the – I'm really glad you brought it up. But don't feel like you're glued to the non-volley zone line. Follow your partner. If they get lobbed, you got to go back with them. Sometimes the lob will go over your head, so your partner's going to go grab it. Switch sides with them, but stay with them back, and then be ready for your opponents to hit a drop shot just in case. And then once that ball goes and lands in the kitchen or is at their knees, transition forward again, and you guys are together. So it's a movement together. If you watch the Johns brothers, if they get lobbed by Matt Wright, who does a ton of lobs, both of them go back. And then they both transition forward together again. The reason for that and is they because, don't sprint forward. Yeah, they don't. They transition forward methodically. And uh, the reason for that is so that they stay in the point because otherwise someone's going to get an overhead at their feet if they just stand at the kitchen line or even three feet off the kitchen line. It's like you got to go all the way back with your with your partner. So does that yeah, make sense? And I, yeah, for sure. But I, I actually take this a little bit too far, and I think some people have this problem too. So in my situation, sometimes I'm back for too long or I go back too often. Even if I see my partner slightly pop it up, you know, it's it's not a lot, but maybe my partner slightly pops it up and I'm I'm instantly backing up when I need to focus on being more on the line. Um, but I think there should be a healthy balance there between yeah. when when to back up and and when to, you know, somewhat hold your ground there uh on the line. What that healthy balance is, I mean, could be different for everybody. I'm still learning it trying to figure it out. Um, if you know for sure your partner's popped it up, get back there with them. If for sure you guys have been lobbed and your partner goes back, you got to get back there like Austin said. Um, but, you know, if it's if it's slightly high, be there at the net ready ready to counter because um, you're, you're probably going to get attacked and you have a better chance of out of the air maybe in that situation. Um, if your partner's hit it really high and it's an overhead, it, it, you know, then it, then it's time to back up. But I tend to back up a little bit too much, even if it's slightly high. So I would, I would say, you know, maybe don't do that. Um, that way, you can work on getting faster hands. You can work on getting a better game um, when it's only slightly high. I had another point too. Um, you had brought up some. Oh, so J W Johnson, another great pro. Something that he does, if, if we're referring to dinking back and forth as far as staying on the line, instead of taking a step back um, in some situations, he will, um, hopefully you can see this on the camera, he will bring his, his wrist back like this and just bring his arm behind him so he can still scoop the ball. Again, you have to drill this in order to get good at it. But he can scoop the ball while still staying on the line and hitting the ball off the bounce instead of taking a step back and and then um, and then dinking the ball. I'll uh, I'll make a video on it so that everybody can see it so see he's it inverting, better. Inverting his wrist. 
Yeah, in order to kind of scoop the ball up, which is hit slightly behind him, even though right. we we were taught not to hit behind us. But he's able to do that consistently after drilling it quite a bit right. and scooping it up behind him instead of taking the step back. So there are some situations where you're able to. And if you're able to stay on the line and put pressure on your opponent and and get as many balls out of the air as you can, then then that's great too. But there are definitely situations where it's okay to take a step back. You should take a step back, reset the point, and then methodically work your way back forward. Also, I was going to ask you, I know that you you played uh, Tyson McGuffin, who's another pro, uh, just to help prepare him for a match there in St. George. And he had talked to you about, about uh, when it comes to dinking, getting as many balls out of the air. Can you share that with us? Yeah, he actually didn't talk to me about it. Um, I asked him for advice when we were playing singles. I asked him some stuff, but we could share that another time. But um, I just noticed playing him as compared to 5-0s is he is very focused on getting, I don't know how, the dude's like 5-9 probably. Maybe. I, I've taken a five picture eight? next to him, and I'm 5-8. And I'm I think we're the same height. He's 5'8", so. but he's got like the, it feels like he has the arm span of Riley Newman in there, or like Dirk Nowitzki, because yeah. he can reach into there, and I didn't understand it, but holy cow, he is like, he's not on the line, but he gets close to the line, and he tr he's trained it 100% to not touch the line, because he doesn't get called for foot faults. I mean, obviously everybody does, but he does not stand on the line somehow, but he gets within... I mean, a centimeter or so of the line uh -huh. reaches in and he's constantly reaching in with his paddle and he's ready with a backhand and he'll do uh, a backhand smack. It's not so much a roll because he's not coming over the ball and it's not a slice either. It's a punch volley coming straight as he punches through the ball and he's hitting that at hips over and over and over again. He kept getting us all on it and we're like, how was he not in the kitchen? Because he was just reaching in so far. He's reaching in like more than half of the kitchen, it felt like. Yeah. And so reaching into the kitchen and getting really close to the line and actually training that is what I've been focusing on for the last mm -hmm. few months now. And it makes such a big difference because people are just like, how did you take that ball out of the air? They just aren't ready or expecting that ball to come. And so he'll dink, dink, dink. But anytime he can get a dink out of the air, he's getting it out of the air. That doesn't mean he's, he's going to speed it up. It's just the ones that are close to higher than the net or maybe slightly below the net. He's going to punch that up at someone's shoulder or he's going to punch it at their right hip or left hip if they're lefty. So that, that really impressed me. But, yeah, taking as many balls, being aggressive, taking as many balls as you can out of the air and dinks out of the air really puts a lot of pressure on your opponents. That right, and so that's that's kind of the point that I wanted to bring up is okay. is getting it out of the air instead of um, so the counter argument to what we've been talking about in certain situations like this, if you're going to get the ball out of the air, well then you don't have to wait for the the ball to bounce slightly behind you and then back up and hit it. You're able to get it out of the air. So if you're able to consistently get it out of the air, there's you know, you don't have to back up, you know, stay, stay on the kitchen line, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, but, but there's nothing wrong with 
with backing up sometimes if it's a difficult shot and then working your way back to the non-volley zone. Uh, next one, Os. Let's see. Speeding up a low or lowish ball. We're told not to speed up low balls and not to speed up any balls off the bounce. I think this one depends a lot on skill level. Uh, yeah. Your skill level and your opponent's skill level. Um, but even at an advanced level, it's very rare when people speed up. I shouldn't say very rare. It's rare when people speed up a low ball or a ball off the bounce, but they do do it every once in a while just to catch the catch the opponent off guard. Um, it just it's it's not a great shot if you're trying to do it every time because the opponent's going to be ready for it, and then the ball's going in an upward trajectory, and your opponent's gonna gonna put it away and let you know that it was a bad decision. Um, but in my opinion, I think it's okay to do every once in a while, you know, maybe once per game or, or once per match, depending on your skill level. If you have confidence in speeding that ball up, um, then go ahead and do it. And then one more point on that, um, a backhand flick or a backhand roll from low can be really effective because you're putting spin on the ball when you do it. And it makes it look like the ball is going to go up and out. So you have opponents that think, okay, that ball's going out. But the spin that you're able to put on the ball makes it dip in the court. Um, so that's another time to speed up from low. Um, hoping that you're, I mean, it's still high risk, but hoping that your opponent will let the ball go thinking that it's, that it's going to go out. Um, trying to put as much spin on it regardless of the shot from low is probably your best, your best chance. But what's your opinion on speeding up balls from low or balls off the bounce? Us. Yes, this is what I've been working on lately. Part part of it is recognizing when to flick as compared to when to just dink it out of the air. And um, I can do it on the forehand side a lot more naturally than I could on the backhand side, but I've been practicing the backhand side so much that it feels pretty dang comfortable. But it's recognizing which balls to dink and which balls to flick. And I think that just comes from drilling it over and over and over again. And I would get out with my slinger bag and have it feed me balls. And the slinger bag gives you a pretty consistent feed, but they're going to be, it's going to vary with like a foot or so. So then I get these really low ones and I'm leaning way into the kitchen and I would notice that I was flicking those. So I'm like, okay, so now I recognize I should not be flicking these. They're going in, but they're going to go directly to the strike zone of the opponent up here and they're going to be able yeah. to hit it. So it's, it was a realization like, okay, this is too low. If it's low and it's deep in the kitchen, making that decision to just dink it out of the air. And then if it was low but closer to me, I had a better opportunity to put enough flick on it and put, the, put a better location on it so it wasn't just going straight up into their strike zone, but it would come up and I could get it you know near their shoulder or something like that, high up on their body but not your head height or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion on it is I think a lot of people say never if it's below the net tape or if the ball is low, never speed it up is wrong. Obviously you should, and it's a good opportunity to, but I think it comes down to the distance of the ball. Now the distance of the ball from the net and from your paddle. So closer it is to your paddle. I think you have a better opportunity to speed it up. If the ball is bouncing, 
again, I, it comes down to does your speed up suck or is your speed up great? Because my forehand speed up is pretty dang decent. My backhand speed up, absolute garbage. And that's what <laughs> I've been working on is a two-handed backhand speed up. So I know if I get a low ball and it's what I've been practicing and I'll practice it in rec games because I don't care because I just want to practice, right? Right. And it goes long. Yeah, it goes long. I mean, that's it. That's the end of the story. It just goes long again and again and again. But I'm trying <laughs> to learn to get more topspin on it over and over again. And then once I learn it, hopefully I'll have the Riley Newman two-handed backhand, right? Because he attacks from low all the time. But yeah, it comes down mm-hmm. to skill level and practicing and drilling it. And I'm not there yet, but like, you know, I've hit a couple that were pretty dang awesome on the backhand side, but it's not consistent at all and I need to drill it. So it just comes down to does it suck or does it not? And if it sucks, drill it and it'll get a lot better. Yeah. It, and it comes down to, uh, you know, in my opinion, don't do it s- super often. Exactly. When you do it, you're, you're, you're catching your opponent off guard, not, not showing them that you're doing it every time. Yeah. Uh, you made me think of on the, so if you're, if you're dinking, like for me, I have a one-handed backhand for the most part, um, working on my two-handed backhand a little bit, but if I'm dinking, you know, typically slice, sometimes topspin, but I'm only using one hand on the backhand. And then if I want to speed up from my left-hand side with two hands, the opponent's going to know that I'm speeding up because that's the only time I put my second hand on the paddle. Right. And I've seen this with other players, so keep that in mind. I mean, I'm able to tell right away if someone that's dinking with me one-handed and then I see him put two hands on the paddle... Me and my partner are going to know instantly, okay, this guy's speeding up. Uh, so if you could work on a, a consistent way to either attack with one hand or even better, try to dink more with two hands, mix it in here or there so that when you put your second hand on the paddle with two hands, you could be dinking or speeding up and they're not, they're not sure which one that you're, you're going to do. So here's kind of the answer to that, and I got it from watching a senior pro match. I'm not sure the name of the guy, but he's fantastic. He's probably top 20 in the world. He was playing with Callan Dawson's uh, dad. What's his name, Steve? Steve Dawson? Yeah, Steve. Playing with his dad. Uh So whoever that guy is, I don't know his name, but he's a great player. What he does is he puts two hands on the paddle, and then he has a one-handed dink. So he's in ready position with two hands, right? And then he'll come back. He's playing left side, and he'll dink with uh, with one hand. And then after he dinks uh. a few, all of a sudden he sneaks in this thing, and I've been trying to learn it ever since I watched him do it. And that's why I've been practicing my backhand speed up. Is right. All of a sudden, that hand stays on, and he does this quick little flick. You have no idea it's coming, and it's a winner. And he did it in this match just over and over again. It was the coolest thing. And then obviously it becomes predictable, so you got to change your location. But yeah, it's it's an awesome shot. But yeah, the solution is just ready position. Disguising. Really. Yeah. yeah, ready position, making sure that you have your left hand. If you're a right-handed player, if you're a left-handed player, having your right hand on the paddle out in front of you and then releasing the the hand as you dink or staying on and speeding up. 
And I've noticed that a lot of females are, are better at this also. I got to turn yeah. off an alarm. Sorry, one second. Yeah. Speaking of females that are really good at this, Annalie Waters invented, I don't know what it's called. I'm trying to remember what it's called, but she invented this two-handed backhand roll where her opponents will be like covering middle or something like that. And she would just, right when she first started, she was like 14 years old, and she'd be hitting winners on guys in mixed where she would be, or girls in um, women's, where they would be covering the middle and she would just blow it past them with that two-hander. I think it comes more naturally to, to girls because they feel like they need that extra power, so they've always been using two hands, and they start that way, and it's just like taking them to the next level, and so everybody's been working on getting a better two-hander as a result. I didn't know you were back, but yeah, I was just talking about, I don't know, could you hear? Oh, yeah, I got it. Okay. Yeah, Annalie Waters. has What is that called, Spencer? What she does? You remember? Uh, I don't know, but um, I was going to say also that the females, it does come more naturally to them. Their their ready position is typically somewhat of a two-handed position. If they don't quite have two hands gripped on the paddle, they at least have their left hand behind the paddle um, ready for that counterattack if they need to, and then if they need to get a forehand on their other side, then it's more simple for them. It, for me, it's really hard for me to coach my brain to have to have those two hands on the paddle in a ready position because my ready position is typically just the one hand. But anyway, something something to work on. Yeah, someone to watch Oops. that has a nasty one is, um, well, two people, Jill Braverman, and hers is just so good. And uh, Tereshenko. Tereshenko's is so good. Her two-handed bash oh, is yeah. beautiful. Hers is also, I mean, yeah, there's a ton of females that, that are, I mean, the, I would say the majority of female pros, um, do have a pretty great one. Yeah. So that was, uh, speeding up a low ball or speeding off the bounce. Another controversial, this one's somewhat controversial, but I think most of us err on, on one side or the other. I won't tell you what side I'm on yet, but the third shot lob, you don't see it very often. Um, typically you only see it, uh, on the pro scene really from, from one player, uh, and that's AJ Kohler to me, <laughs> in my opinion, and I've messaged him on this before, uh, in my opinion, when it comes to the third shot lob, I know what his intent is. I know his intent is to throw off the opponents. He knows that they're coming to the net, so he's going to try to lob it over him. But my opinion, don't do it. It's super high risk. <laughs> Um, even making a third shot lob, you're at your baseline and you're trying to hit it to the opposite baseline while giving it enough arc to do so and go over the other players. But even if you try a third shot lob with nobody on the other side, you're still not going to get it in consistently. Um, I just, I don't like the shot. I don't think it's a good idea, uh, especially if you're near the baseline. So this can be controversial. I didn't ask Austin beforehand what his opinion is on it, but I'm not a fan of the third shot lob. Uh, feel free to comment and share wh why you are a fan, but but I'm not. Os, what side of the fence are you on for this one? I think that the third shot lob, and it's just, I mean, it could or it could not, but I think that there's a big chance that within the next five to ten years, 
the third shot lob will be just as common as a third shot drop. I'm just yeah. thinking about this now. I literally just came up with this now. But I think it could be if people really hone in their lobs. There's a guy in town named Mason Ford. He's an old-time pro. And uh, he had a family and stuff and stopped playing. But he would he used to just take out all these pros. Like Tyler Loon, uh, for those of you that know Chuck Taylor, all these pros that have been playing for a long time, you know. Him and his partner, uh-huh. Eric, Eric Gubler would, you go look at their past matches, and they just destroy these guys. Like, they were really, really good. And obviously, Tyler and Chuck and them are better now. But, like, these guys were the thing before pickleball was really a thing. They were the best. Huh. Um, he has a really fantastic lob and a fantastic third shot lob where he can keep it low enough to where they can't hit it out of the air. Sorry, low enough to where it's fast getting to the baseline but also high enough to where they can't hit it out of the air, and it has topspin on it. So as it lands, it's going to kick towards the fence. So it automatically puts them in an offensive position from a defensive position, just totally flips it around really, really quickly. So I think, I mean, I haven't thought into it, obviously. I'm just coming up with this now, but I think that that would be something that could happen in the five in the next five to ten years where people hit a third-shot lob and they have it just as consistent just as consistent as the drop. I know when I was playing tennis, my my drop, since you don't hit a ton of drops in tennis, my drop was very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And right coming into pickleball, everybody's drop is super inconsistent, right? But it slowly gets better and better because that's what you're doing every single point over and over and over and over and over again is practicing it. So it's the same with that. If people start practicing it, I think it'd be a major part of the game. So... That's, I mean, that's a bold statement. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I, I get what you're saying. It does relate to the drop a lot. I feel that same way when I first started. I couldn't hit a drop to save my life, and now all of a sudden I can. But even, uh, I, I, I just think a lob is so much harder, and there's so many more factors involved. And if you have a little bit of wind involved, and even if you've drilled it over and over, if you get a hard return, if you get a deep return, you get a low return, and you're trying to do it, it's just, I don't know, not a fan. Uh, so we definitely differ on this one. Hey, Maybe I them. just need to practice it more, but I just, I feel like, I feel like whoever's tried third shot lobs, at least currently, um, has lost more points than they've won on the yeah. third shot lob by far. Yeah, and we have a small sample size right now. Like, pickleball is relatively new. We don't have, like, Ben Johns is the best, right? But there are people that are twice as good as Ben Johns that will be coming up through the ranks, and Ben knows that too, and he said it. And I think that those people where it's just like, no matter what, they can hit it within an inch of the baseline every single time. So who knows? Yeah. It's just, I'm not saying that factually, but if it's something that people, like, started practicing, I think that that could really evolve the game. Tell them about your friend. I'm trying to remember his name, Henry. Tell them about Henry's opinion on net cords. Oh, yeah. He had mentioned, and and he's a coach, but he had mentioned like he thinks the game might be geared towards um, his, his, uh, I guess we'll call it big prediction, is that people will train hitting the net. 
or having a net ticker and it falls over. So people will train instead of hitting over the net, train <laughs> so that the ball hits just enough for it to hit the net and then and then Roll go over. over so that when they get into points, you know, they're going to miss a few, but hopefully they make more than they miss. And it, I mean, we all know if a ball hits the net, it's a much harder shot for us to react where the ball is going to go or to get to the ball than if, if it's a clean hit. Um, so I don't know if I believe that one either. I mean, that would be if, <laughs> if somebody wants to sit and train that, I mean, there's, there's good table tennis players that could probably start to figure that out. And if they could complement that with a full pickleball game, I mean, yeah, I could see it, but, but yeah, there's another far-fetched idea for, for everybody to ponder on. Yeah. Just straight <laughs> up train, just straight up training how to be hated by everybody. That would be your whole training plan. <laughs> yeah. How can I yeah. be hated? Let's hit the net every single time. And never apologizing. Next <laughs> podcast, we're going to talk about some etiquette. So we'll talk about apologizing. Uh, okay. So moving on from the third shot lob to a lob from the kitchen. So third shot lob, I'm against personally. But lobs from the kitchen can be super effective. Yeah, they are high risk also. You still have to hit it over the opponent, but you don't have as far a distance. The wind's not as much of a factor. Um, I I like the third shot lob if it's used sparingly and if you've practiced it. Um, but if you get on the court with somebody that hasn't practiced it and they want to start throwing up lobs so that you can get painted with the ball, that's, that's no fun. But I, I am a big fan of the third shot lob here or there because it brings the opponent... Um, brings the opponent back you mean not third shot lob right you don't sorry not third third shot sorry (laughs) a lob from the kitchen i like (laughs) a lob from the kitchen because it brings the opponent back if it's done correctly and it puts you in an offensive position instead of the defense more of a defensive position you were in when you were just dinking back and forth with them but what's your feeling on uh before i ask you os in my opinion the lob from the non-volley zone should be done out of the air uh, and not off the bounce. I feel like it gives the opponent much more reaction time if it's off the bounce and it's just not as good. Whereas if it's out of the air, uh, it's a, it's better. But what do you think? I just said hundred percent, but really 90%. Yeah. Because, (laughs) because sometimes I'll, I'll hit it off of the bounce. It's a good change up. You need to have change ups. So nothing's a hundred percent. Just so sure. you all know, but hundred percent, let's say that. And I would say <laughs> out of the air, you want to act like you want to hit a few dinks out of the air. And that's why it's good to be aggressive an aggressive dinker is because all of a sudden you can be like pop and you can throw in the Callan Dawson where he just lobs it over the, the opponent because he's just right. hit 15, maybe 80 dinks in a row. Cause that's what Callan does. He just hit 80 dinks out of the air in a row. So now he pops it over your head and you don't see it coming because you're expecting an 81st dink, right? <laughs> so I, right. Think that it, I think that it can be very effective and it's all about location. If you got two forehands in the middle, you want to dink up the line. You obviously don't have as much court there, so you got to really hone it in. Did I say dink up the line? I meant lob up the line. Lob, yep. Everybody knows what I mean, right? And uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you got a backhand... In the middle, you want to dink it over the person's backhand. Obviously, you'll have a lot of the times forehand and a backhand in the middle. So you want to go over whoever has the backhand, and I think that you'll have a lot of success from that. I like it. I like the shot majority of the time. Obviously, you can do it too much, and people will expect it 
and just start running back and hitting overheads. And then off of the bounce, I think it's really a, a lot of the time, if the ball ticks the net, both opponents will really lean into the kitchen. So let's say ball they hit a ball, it ticks the net and rolls over. They'll lean into the kitchen because you can only hit mm-hmm. the ball up from there. Boom, over their heads as quickly as you can. You'll have a lot of success and you'll win a lot of points, get a lot of balls over them. If the ball ticks the net, lands on your side because they're leaning forward, the chances of them being ready for a lob is very unlikely based off of that shot. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes tons of sense. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you remembered to talk about that. Uh, Moving on here, we have a few more controversial points. Um, The left side player taking most of the court or in mixed situations, typically the male player taking most of the court. Yeah. Um, I know this can be controversial, especially for females, because they're like, and, and especially the people that haven't watched a lot of pickleball or that are tennis diehards, and they're like, well, she gets, she barely touches any balls, and he's taking all the balls. Well, yeah, well, that's the strategy. They're trying to win. Um, it's <laughs> it's his forehand covering that side. Um, so that one, I, I agree with a hundred percent. I think it should still be done as long as the male has uh, not only the confidence, but the skill level to, to cover that much of the court. I don't think we need to, to cover this topic for forever, but I'm, uh, I'm in favor of, of this, um, of the left side player, typically the male player covering more court because, um, they have a better chance of winning by doing so because he's going to be able to be able to uh, hit more forehands from that side. Your opinion, Oz? Yes, and just understanding the reason why, like you said, is is anybody's backhand going to be more powerful than Ben John's forehand, right? Even Annalie Waters, she has a better backhand than she does a forehand, but her forehand's more powerful than her backhand probably. If it's not, maybe it's a tie. Maybe her backhand's slightly harder because she's got two hands on there. It's her backhand, even within 20 miles an hour, I would say, even within 20 miles an hour of Ben John's forehand. No, in my opinion. Yeah. Ben John's forehand's going to get a lot more smack on the ball than her backhand. Can she place it anywhere? Absolutely. Can Ben place it anywhere? Yes. But power-wise, it makes so much more sense for that person in the middle to hit the forehand what I'm against is them taking every single ball and moving their opponent off the court, which it works for, sure. for it works for Ben because he can cover the court so well, but nobody else can like that. So it's all about just that forehand is going to ultimately be more powerful than the person's backhand there. In my yeah, opinion. they need to take enough enough court, but not too much. And another point is that person on the left hand side is looking to poach a ball if the opponent hits a, a, a somewhat higher dink and just take it right out of the air, whereas yeah. the person next to them won't be able to get it out of the air because they have to wait for the ball to get to them so it catches the opponent off guard. But anyway, sounds like we're both on the same page there. Um, next one is always keep your opponent deep. So we're receiving, we hit the return, we come right to the net, and now our job, I get it, is to try to keep the other team back and stay offensive. But we talked about this a few podcasts ago, and you brought up a good point. The counter-argument to this is if you're 
if those guys are hitting really good drops and, and really good drives to get their way up, we don't want to be speeding up from low in order to try to keep them deep because that ball's going to get popped up and then it's going to get put, you know, painted right back on us. Uh, so sometimes we have to, if the, if they're very consistent and good at hitting a drop and getting into the kitchen line, sometimes we have to let them in. Uh, sometimes we want to say, okay, I can't keep you deep because if I try to keep you deep with this ball, I'm going to end up popping it up slightly and you're going to put it away on me. So I got to go, you know, cross court in the kitchen. I got to keep it short. It looks like we're going to battle this out in a dink and it's going to take a little longer, but we're still going to try to win the point. Um, I know that's your opinion because I kind of stole that from you, but I do agree with it. What else do you have to add to that? If you think about Colin Johns and what makes the Johns bros so hard, I know I keep bringing them up, but it's because they're so freaking good. What makes them so hard to play and so frustrating to play is they slowly transition forward to the kitchen and they're totally fine with getting into a dink rally because they know that absolutely zero people can out dink them. And it's not that they're just hitting these, you know, high dinks or just basic dinks. They're controlling the point continuously moving the opponent around, but they can do that Mm -hmm. while at the same time, being consistent and not missing. There was a statistic I saw. It was the entire tournament. They showed us four of the players, four of the men players, their statistics. And it went over. uh, These two teams made it to the final. It was Matt and Riley versus Colin and Ben, as it usually is. And it went over the statistics. And one of the statistics was Dink's percentage. (laughs) And, um, Ben had missed the entire tournament, zero dinks, the entire tournament. Colin had missed one dink. Riley had missed three, (laughs) and Matt had missed like five. And So they're very comfortable with allowing their opponents to come into the net and dinking because they're literally not going to miss. And that was an exceptional tournament for them anyway. I mean, they're probably going to miss two or three dinks the entire time normally each. But that being said, that's way better than anybody else is going to be able to do. So, yeah, letting your opponent come up, just accepting it. Like, it's not worth it to speed that ball up. Trust in yourself and improve your dink enough when you're drilling to where you know that you can consistently dink. And whether that's moving your opponents around or dinking to the same exact spot over and over and over again, both of those will work so long as it's consistent. And then hopefully you can evolve it into where you're moving your opponent around and stuff like that. So, For sure. And each one of these depends on the situation. Like you may be playing against someone that doesn't have great drops and they're they're popping the ball up from deep. So if, so if that's the case, keep hitting the ball deep. Hit overheads deep at them and you're going to win the point or put an angle on them and put the ball away. But in a lot of cases, if they're competitive and they're consistent, sometimes you have to say... Uh, all right, this is going to be a longer point, but we're going to we're going to have to let them in here so that they don't put the ball away on us. Yeah. Like um that. couple more points here. These are the last two. There's definitely more out there, but we're we're going over just two more. Uh a table tennis grip versus a standard grip. We can go over this pretty quickly. I can think of two guys uh that play professional that hold a ping pong or table tennis grip and i'll show you what that is 
that's holding the paddle up here at the throat. Um, and this is how I started playing pickleball. This was my thing. You're at risk of, of breaking your finger on the backside too. But <laughs> anyway, this is how I started playing. I thought this was the way to go. It felt like, okay, my balls are going to be more consistent. But I miss. I was missing out on a lot of things by not bringing my hand down here. Um, one of those things was speed. I feel like I definitely can't get as much speed on the ball, even with a thinner paddle. I can't get as much speed on the ball. Uh, another thing I'm missing is the ability to to roll it because my hand's only in one position. Whereas if I want to go from continental to maybe eastern or switch things up, I can't really do that. And I've noticed I thought that this was the most consistent way. But for me personally, when I finally forced myself to bring my hand down here, uh, I am much more consistent with with this standard grip than I am with with the table tennis grip. Um, there's going to be more against the ping pong grip than will be for the ping pong grip or the table tennis grip, we should say. Um, but Os, what's your opinion on those two grips? Never really thought about it until now, but I would... I feel like I'm on the opposite side of the fence with you so it's interesting that you've tried it and you feel like your hands are faster without it because I feel like your hands would be faster if you were closer to the face of the paddle because then ball the paddle's speed, a bit hands. lighter say that again uh, I feel like my ball speed is a lot faster like maybe on oh, a drive okay. or speed up okay. or something like that uh, typically on a drive 100% as far as faster hands yeah I can see that argument okay yeah keep going yeah, because faster hands, because you're closer to the paddle face, makes your paddle lighter because you're in the center of the paddle. Whereas yeah. if you go to the tip, it's going to be a lot more head heavy. But like you were saying, you go closer to the bottom of your paddle. I don't have my paddle with me, but you go closer to the bottom of your paddle doing a traditional paddle hold. You're going to have a lot more spin on the ball, a lot faster balls coming off of your, your hand. Yeah, thinking about, you said you know two pros. Who are those two pros? So Callan Dawson is one of them, and then Rob Cassidy is the other one. Rob Cassidy's yeah. left-handed, and That's uh, right. and uh, me personally, like he's your favorite I, player. I, <laughs> <laughs> I struggle watching Rob Cassidy play. Uh, he he had knee pads on the last time I saw him play, and it's no. just a it's a bad look for the sport. Sorry guys. Uh, yeah, I played volleyball as well. I get it, but don't please don't wear knee pads while you play it just makes a sport that's already called pickleball just look way worse but anyway yeah he those those are the two Callan's really consistent but i mean if you think about it he never wins anything ever yeah so True. uh it'd be it'd be cool if he switched i'd like to see like what the results are if he if he if he switched his grip that'd be and, interesting and went to the other rob, rob cassidy Sorry, Rob, uh, you don't win anything either. And and neither do I. I'm not saying that I do, but I know all these there's a lot of players that have the traditional grip and they're and they're winning. So anyway, that's probably enough with that one. And then lastly, last controversial point, uh being only a left side player or only a right side player. And what we mean by that is 
there's the left side of the court and the right side of the court. Uh, people specialize for sure, especially pros, so that you can stack. Um, you know, maybe someone's left-handed, they're better suited for the right because their forehand's in the middle. Uh, right-handed, you're better suited for the left. Uh, maybe you're both right-handed, but one specializes in in playing on the right side while the other left. Um, it can be a very good strategy. I personally am not against it in any way. Um, I think whatever can give you that extra edge. Um, but at the same time, I know there's the counter argument to that is, hey, you know, maybe so-and-so isn't quite the complete player that they could be because they're always on the left or always on the right. Um, and your opinion on that, Aust, is what? I haven't really thought about it much, um, but I think specializing is better, I would say, uh, if you're wanting to be pro, and and I'd say only for if you're wanting to be a pro and you're playing pro, specializing. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like you're not playing pro, so you're not making any money. You're 5-0, you're a 4-5, you're a 4-0, you're a 3-5, whatever it is. You're not making money, so... Why not practice and get really good at both sides? But as a pro, I think like with Colin Johns, he's extremely good on the on the right side, obviously. He's pretty decent on the left side, but he doesn't train the left side as much. So obviously the right side's gonna be a lot better than the left. But yeah, I don't know. I don't really other than that, I'd say I feel like people should get good at both sides. Uh the other thing is a lefty. Everybody thinks a lefty should be on the left side. When we had Ben Newell on our podcast, he talked to us because I was like, hey, you were on the, sorry, a lefty should be on the right side. We are like, hey, you you were on the left side when you, when they beat the Johns brothers. They just keep coming up, don't they? Just keep coming yeah. up out of my mouth. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, he's a lefty and he was on the left side for and he a was on the left side. And I was like, what was up with that? And, he was explaining it, and he's like, well, it's a great changeup, and I'm really good at my my forehand dink over there. And it's like, well, when I play on the right side, and I'm a right side player, my forehand dink's really, really good over there, and I can cover yeah. middle with my two-hand, two-handed backhand pretty simply, right? So I don't know. I think specifically um, you, you don't – Ben. what Ben Johns thinks is that <laughs> – comes up again, but what Ben Johns thinks is that <laughs> – lefties and righties will be all the future pro teams. There will be one lefty and one righty on the team, which I think could be plausible and I think makes sense. But it's like currently we have a a right-handed, the best player in the world, according to points, is Colin Johns right now, and he's right-handed. And And he plays uh, on the right. And he plays on the right side. So I don't know. I I don't really have an opinion about it, but that's just... I guess my opinions of it. <laughs> Anything you would add, Spence? Uh, no, I think we've we've covered a lot of these, and there's yeah. a lot of more controversial pickleball topics that we'll bring up at another time, but we hope this was beneficial for you. Uh, our advice today in bringing this up is, is hey, uh, don't always just take the opinion of someone because or multiple people because a group of people tells you that you have to do something a certain way experiment for yourself uh figure out what works best for you and that and that will improve your game and maybe you find out in certain situations hey that group of people was right 
they told me not to do that. I did it anyway over and over and it's just not working out. Or, you know, you could find out that they were that they were wrong and you're able to improve your game by doing something different. Yeah. Um so don't always follow the public court of opinion. Maybe maybe try some things out, especially when you're drilling or, or in rec play too, and, and see what works best for you and for improving your personal game. That's what we're here for is to try and help you uh you get better something uh, uh something yeah, interesting ahead. right when i first started watching pickleball in 2020 all the announcers would ever say this was the only thing that they had the capacity to say for some reason it really bothered me but all they would say is oh look the team that initiated the speed up lost the point the team that initiated <laughs> the speed up lost the point and they just kept saying it over and over yeah. and over again and now all that they're saying is Look how much the game has evolved, and now speed-ups are winning you the point. Speed-ups are winning you the point. Tactical speed-ups are winning you the point. So they've totally flopped on what they said. So it's like the yeah, game evolves. Sure. So it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's going to be different, right? Not everybody should hold the same grip as a pro that they like. Not everybody should play the same way as a pro they like. They should play according to how their specific needs, according to how their body works, according to what feels right to them is how they yeah. should play the game and the game will continue to evolve and become better as a result of them playing their what's best for them if that makes more if that makes sense but the game's continually evolving so to say yeah one size fits all and to have these opinions on stuff where it's 100 percent of the time this is what you need to do the sport in five years i'll guarantee you will absolutely contradict what that says so we appreciate you guys listening to the podcast today. We hope that it's been beneficial for you. And uh, we hope to see you guys on the next one. Peace out. Later, Pickleheads.